Runners Radio is brought to you by runners.com and the Runners Red Zone. It's the only running coaching platform you will ever need. There's no thinking, no planning. We do all of that. Just put us in your ears and away you go. 45-minute quality running sessions, strength and conditioning for anyone, yoga, and much, much more. If you're wanting to take minutes off your PB, run a marathon, or just beginning your running journey, then head on over to runners.com. That's R-U-N-N-E-Z.com, and get started. Rightio, let's get on to the show. Previously on Runners Radio. I've looked up to this fella for a long, long time. I welcome to the Runners Radio, Mario Freoli. Welcome, mate. The more likely it would be that we'd score low enough points to go on to the, the national meet. I, I was fortunate that I was coaching someone from a very small country who had a pretty incredible opportunity, and I, I happened to be able to take advantage of it. Tell us about what. Give us your top two tips, um, and go as in depth as you want. Top two tips for someone trying to break three hours in the marathon, which is quite a quite a common, but also very lofty goal. And and I guess from there, some the two biggest mistakes that um, runners make when trying to break like a time like three hours or three hours thirty. One of those, I guess, landmark goals over the um, forty two point one nine five. Sure, um, I think they're they're these two things are one and the same. Number one is consistency matters. And part of that is time. Um, you, I mean, some athletes have the ability that they can go out and break three hours in their first marathon or 240 or four out, whatever it, you know, whatever it happens to be. But if this is a lofty goal for you, whatever the, the number is, you need to give yourself the time to develop as an athlete, to develop the aerobic base that is necessary for you to have success at that distance. You need to put in consistent quality work for a long period of time, period. Uh, It's not really much more complicated than that. And in order to do that, you've got to stay healthy. You've got to stay motivated. You've got to be very methodical and calculated in your approach. And there's no one way to do it, but just knowing like it takes time and it takes doing the right things over a long period of time in order to, to have success. It's not going to happen overnight for 99.9% of people. It's not going to just take 12 weeks. It's not going to take 16 weeks. Um, this should be this being, being the pursuit of, of running or marathoning. It should it should be a lifestyle. It shouldn't just be a, you know, here's one thing that, that, that I want to do because if you embrace it as a lifestyle and you take this long-term approach and you really embrace consistency, that's when you're going to have success. And, and the mistake there is a lot of runners just don't give themselves enough time. They, they say for whatever reason, they see a friend do it, uh, or because it's a nice round number, they say, I want to break three hours. I want to break four hours. And here we are, in October and they, they say, I want to do it in March of next year or in April. Well, I mean, depending on, on who you are and, and what your background is, like that might not be enough time. Like you, you may need to give yourself a year, possibly two years where it's like, Hey, well right now you're an hour off of that goal. So how about over the next year, we try to take off like 15, 20 minutes. And then, you know, if we run a, a fall marathon in the fall, like we'll take off another like 15, 20 minutes. We chip away at it. Um, but I think, we live in a time where people just want things yesterday uh, and they don't realize like something as lofty as a three hour marathon or three thirty or two thirty, whatever it happens to be like you can probably do it if you give yourself enough time and if you commit to consistency. And part of that process is there's going to be disappointment and you're probably going to take a step back from time to time. But if that allows you to take a couple steps forward, like that's what I'm talking about. That's the that's the process. That's the consistency. That's the the sticking with it. The second thing is that intensity matters. And I can't tell you how many marathoners, regardless of what time they're shooting for, come to me and say, I've run 
six marathons or four marathons or two marathons, whatever it happens to be. And every time I get to 20 miles or 22 miles or 18 miles and I'm right on pace and I've been very even and then I, I hit the wall and then I can't move my legs and I lose 20 seconds, 30 seconds, a minute per mile the rest of the way and I come short of my goal. And more often than not, I look at those runners and oftentimes they miss point one. They haven't given themselves enough time uh, to, to really train. They haven't been as consistent as they thought they've, they've really been. But more often than not, the way that they've trained for this marathon or for all of their marathons in the past is in such a way that they are either running marathon pace or faster than marathon pace way too often or they're never running it at all. And they're going to the track twice a week and hammering these hard interval sessions, which is going to get you fit, but it's not going to get you marathon fit. And there's a big difference between being a fit runner and being fit for the marathon. They're, they're very different things. So, so intensity matters. And oftentimes as, as a coach, and I'm looking at someone's program, it's getting them to a point where I'm saying like, okay, if I'm just being real with you, maybe you need a bit more time uh, and we need to accomplish certain things before you're going to be ready to you know, pursue this three-hour goal that you have or 3.30 goal that you have. But oftentimes it's looking at, at their training and saying like, I, I need to slow you down. Like your track workouts are actually like way too fast um, because I think there is this mindset among people that they have to work harder. And if they work harder and they run faster, like they're, they're going to run faster. Look, I don't care if you can go out and run 10 by 800 in three flat. That doesn't tell me that you're ready to run a three hour marathon. Like a three hour marathoner should be able to do that workout, but there's not a direct correlation there. Um, I've seen programs where they're like, I've done all I've done and it's no offense to Bart Yasso. I've had him on my podcast. He's a great guy. We talked about this, but you know they've they've done their Yasso 800s. They hit three minutes for all of them, and then they run the marathon. They run 3:20. But then I go look at their training, and they they've either overemphasized the track workouts, and they don't have enough of an aerobic base that they're working off of. I go look at their long runs, and you know three-hour marathon pace is you know sub 650 per mile, and they're doing all of their marathon long runs at you know, 750 per mile, eight minutes per mile, um, going real, going real slow. There's no intensity in there. Um, when you're training for a marathon, like the long run is more important than the track workout. Like that's the, pri that's gotta be the primary focus for most weeks. Um, and they're not all going to be at marathon pace. Like you've got to learn how to run at marathon pace. You've got to learn how to run slightly faster than marathon pace. You've got to do some running slightly slower than marathon pace, but that's the intensity that matters. And a lot of age group runners more are now, but a lot of them aren't doing that kind of stuff. Like they're not doing the, the right kind of, of work. They're, they're focusing on the wrong intensity and in the, in the marathon, uh, because it's such a long race and because there are so many variables and things that could possibly go wrong, you've got to address that in your training. Um, but the thing is too, like, here's the thing, like you can't just go do it. Like this is, this is back to point one. It's, it's, it's consistency and it's giving yourself time. The workouts that I assign my marathoners that help them be successful and achieve and achieve their goals in order to be able to like do that kind of training, like we've got to do the training to be ready for the, the training. And I think there are a lot of people who they run their two marathons a year. They give themselves 12, 12 or 16 weeks beforehand. And maybe they weren't sitting on the couch, but they're, they're not ready for marathon training when they start that block. I mean, yeah, you're going to get fitter over that period of, of time, but you're not doing the right kind of work. So, I mean, I don't know if any of that rambling makes sense. It's very no, long, absolutely not. Hey, that long winded response, but those are, those are like the two, the two big things for me, uh, that I, I see more often than not is, is just like consistency and not giving yourself enough time. And then, and then two, like just not focusing on the right type of intensity for what it is that you're trying to do. I wouldn't call that rambling at all. That was beautifully said and really marry in with all our stuff over the last 15, 16 years, mate, that was spot on. Can look, like, consistency is everything specificity in that phase, especially that nine to 10 weeks, it's crucial. And you can't be expecting to break three hours and run 
whatever it is, four, 10 kilometers, four minute, 10 kilometers, if you've done minimal of that specific stuff over long runs. So especially yeah. in the, well, in the last 10 weeks, especially. It- yeah, and and you see people going and hammering the the interval sessions and the track workouts, and then, you know, they're they're not running slow enough in between to actually recover. I mean, you see them do that; they go do this big, oftentimes like long slow run, or maybe it's a long fast run at marathon pace or slightly faster. But they're doing that the rest of the week as well. So by the time they get to the race, they're fried, and and they just they can't close it out so it's learning that like intensity matters yes the intensity of that long run matters and learning what marathon rhythm feels like certainly matters but you've got to modulate the rest of the week as well like you've got to have you know those track workouts where you're running quite a bit faster than than marathon pace but you've got to also balance that out with some very very easy recovery runs and and a lot of age group marathoners are knuckleheads i mean they'll they'll just go out and it's especially the men like hammer all the time like it's just hammer, hammer, hammer all the time. Uh, and you know, they, they don't want to commit to building that aerobic base. So as a bit of a shortcut, it's like, well, if I can't run longer and I can't, you know, I'm not going to put in as many miles, like I'll just run faster. And it's like, that just doesn't work. Like it, it does not, it does not work. It doesn't work for many things in life, let alone marathons. So look, it has to be hardwired. We can't rely on motivation. We it, that is just absolute rubbish. It has to be hardwired and patient. And if you're going to be a good marathon or endurance athlete in general, like play the long game. And this is part of you your have next to. next fifty years. But you want to peak in three years, four years. And I, I couldn't agree more. I actually had a conversation over Zoom with sixty of our marathoners just last night about this subject on the easy running, which is common knowledge in our game, but. Uh, I think Strava has stuffed it in a way, not not by Strava's fault, but um, so many of these guys, they're not regenerating. They're not doing their easy jogs. Um, even though I've, I've specified some easy running, it's not it's not happening as easy as it should be. Um, and it's a lot of them know about it, but some of them aren't even aware of it. And it's, it's just not their fault because they're looking at Strava and they're comparing. So Strava's a great tool for, I've got to use it for a bit of a training log, but I, I'm not on there looking at, what, what what other people are doing and going well because if this is my easy jog to regenerate then how the hell am i going to regenerate and absorb the work i did on on that hard track session if i'm running um almost marathon pace on my easy jog like it's just never going to happen and we're doing ourselves a massive disservice if we're comparing ourselves to other athletes because everyone's on different journeys and everyone's never going to be at the same physiological or, or just path in their training in their training um age in general so um what's your thoughts on that I couldn't agree more. I personally use Strava. I love it as a training log and for the data that I can analyze, but I have enough self-discipline with that platform that I can leave it alone afterward. And even if I see something that someone else does, and maybe this because I've been at the sport now for 23 years and I just I know what I need to do to be successful. I'm not triggered by what other people are doing, but I see it with my athletes all the time. And I've increasingly had more conversations with people especially during this pandemic where there aren't any major races that we can go to so people are doing virtual things and look you scroll through your strava feed you're going to find someone who is crushing it every day someone is going to be on every day and if you're not that can really mess with your head and the nature of of that platform with kudos and stuff like that, like people will do stuff for the kudos. Like they know if they go out and they run for an hour at a ridiculously slow pace, there's nothing sexy about that. So you're probably not going to get a lot of thumbs up. But if you go out and you ran a track workout on Tuesday and you've got this dopamine hit from all of these people who follow you saying, oh, it's an impressive session. Like, you know, kudos, great comments. Hey, you were crushing it. That's great. And then you go out the next day and you want more of that. And you should be running, I don't know, five minutes a K for your easy run. And you go out and you're running like four minutes a K because you want that validation and you're on this high from all of the adulation that you got the night before you're not doing yourself any favors. You're actually, you're, you're hurting your training. Like, yeah, you might get more kudos from that, but you're not going to get a good training effect from that. Um, and this is where I think with something like Strava, ignorance can be bliss. It's good to not know on some level what other people are doing. You can learn from other people. 
And you can take ideas. And if you have enough discipline to draw the line and say, hey, that's interesting. Maybe I will try something like this next week or I'll talk to my coach about it and see if this is something we can put in my program. That's productive. That's great. If you're trying to keep up with what someone else is doing who's close to your ability level and you're tying your self-worth and, and your validation as a runner-up in that, you're you're not doing yourself any favors. Like you're, you're really hurting yourself in a pretty profound way. So I think like limiting the number of people that you follow, um, being willfully ignorant of what other people are doing can help you do what you need to do. And that's focus on what you need to do that day. If it's a day that you need to run hard, you can go do that on your own. If it's a day that you need to run easy, you have the self-discipline to go out and say, well, you know what? I, I'm feeling pretty shattered from that session last night and I am going to just crawl along at whatever pace I need to crawl along with. Even if that means I get, you know, five kudos where I was looking for like 20, you know, from, from the night before. I mean, I, I think like it sounds ridiculous as I talk through it, but I I've just talked to enough athletes and I've seen them fall into that, that trap on Strava of, of the comparison game. And I mean, I've written this in my newsletter before I say to my athletes all the time, comparison is the thief of joy. If you're constantly comparing yourself to what other people are doing, you're never going to be good enough and you're not going to be able to celebrate your, your own wins as minor as they may seem at the time. Um, very well said. And it's funny because only 12 hours ago, we was having this exact same conversation and, and we just cannot fall into that trap of that negative narrative around our running. And we just cannot, mm-hmm. because the, if it's, if the only thing that's going to help you not do it is remind yourself that it's going to be a massive performance inhibitor that if you're going to, if you're going to try to, if, if you're the only time time matters is on race day or on specific mm-hmm. sessions. So it, it's irrelevant. Do your easy jogging. If you're doing eight runs a week, then I think we all agree at least five of them should be very, very easy. Um, jogs, but we'll move on that topic because I want to go in that segue before we get into the, the shakeout and the media stuff of your last few weeks and months uh, coming off Strava and or, or you're on Strava, of course, but off your social network handles and tell us about this because it's a massive part of your business, I guess, let's say that. Um, and, and what led you to that decision, great man? So I quit Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook about three weeks ago now. And by quit, I mean deactivate my accounts. You cannot find me on any of those platforms. And to rewind quite a bit, I can't remember when I joined Facebook, probably early, like 2007, maybe. Um, I think Twitter, I know Twitter I joined in 2010, uh, right before I started working at Competitor, which I know we'll talk about here in a little bit. Uh, And Instagram, probably 2012. But in the past few years, Instagram and Twitter specifically really took hold of me to the point where I was just completely consumed by both of these platforms, thinking that if there were something happening and running, I needed to chime in on it, or I needed to be pushing out training tips so that I could stay relevant in the coaching space or I needed to share my work because how would people see it otherwise or I need to go on Instagram and post something to stay relevant and stroke my own ego I mean really a lot of it what it came down to is like put something up there and like I was talking about with Strava for for me like Strava doesn't have that effect but Instagram did like I would do a lot for the, the likes and, and the comments, you know, put something on and seeing how it was, it was responded to. And I could always in my head justify it as work. This is how I grow my business. This is how I promote what, I, what it is that I'm doing. The truth of it is this is where I was just wasting a lot of time. And not only that, it was really starting to mess with my head because I was tying up a lot of my self-worth and my happiness in how my posts were performing on these platforms. And this has been an ongoing struggle for years. I've taken 
the last few years, at the end of the year, a social media sabbatical of sort where I'll, I'll just log out for a week and, and stay offline, usually around the holidays, which it's easy to do because I'm around family and there's not much going on. And it was almost, it, it was all, I almost did that because it was so easy. Like I knew that I wasn't really missing much and everyone else is kind of going into shutdown mode over that time. So, you know, it was just like, uh, I need, I need to do this. And more recently, I have removed the apps from my phone so I could only log in on my computer or, you know, I, I log out and then log back in. I got to a point where before I quit entirely, I was uninstalling Instagram from my phone. And then when I wanted to use it, I would reinstall it and I'd set a 10 minute timer. And then lo and behold, 10 minutes would turn into 20. Instead of taking it off, I would leave it there and it'd be the first thing I check the next morning and very like they're very addictive platforms and I am uh, maybe I'm ashamed, but maybe not. Cause maybe this will help someone. I was addicted to, to not only these platforms, but I think a lot of it was tied up in ego. I think I was, I was addicted to the ego boost uh, to the dopamine hit, but, but certainly addicted to these platforms. I could not help myself from getting that, that little hit that, that I was desperately seeking. Sometimes it, late hours of the night before bed when everyone else is offline and you're scrolling. I mean, I I'm embarrassed to say I hit the end of Instagram a, a few times, like where you get to the end and it says, or if you haven't been there, like you get to a, the, the check mark and it says you're all caught up, meaning you've looked at everyone's posts from everyone that you, you follow. And that's kind of pathetic. It's, it's kind of sad. Um, and I was also realized, like, I didn't like how it was making me feel, um, you know, because I was so reliant on, you know, what, the feelings that it, that it would give me. And, and I finally admitted to myself, like I'm addicted, like I'm addicted to this. And I, you know, I need to, I tried to wean myself off of it at first and that just didn't work. My personality isn't wired quite that way. And, and there are in my family, um, substance addictions that my uncles and some others have, have dealt with. So I, I know like maybe genetically I'm kind of wired that way, but I was, really just not in, in a good place. And I read all the books. I read Cal Newport's Digital Minimalism. I've read all the articles about how to curb your usage. I did all the things that were recommended. None of it was working for me. Like I just didn't have that level of discipline with these particular platforms. So I quit cold turkey. I just, one day I, I decided this is what I need to do. And when you make a decision like that, it has to be pretty drastic because if you wallow on it for too long, you're never going to do it. Uh, and you'll find, you know, I, and I had done this before, like I'd found ways to, you know, just justify my use or, you know, limit it in some way and it never worked out. So I, I just went down the line, Facebook, delete, Twitter, delete, Instagram, delete, gone, just completely gone. And it was the simultaneously one of the scariest and most freeing things that I've I've ever done. Um, because I, I knew I didn't like how they made me feel, especially Twitter. Um, but I was also worried what impact it could have on my, my profession. I'm self-employed as, as a coach, as a writer, and as a, a podcast host, I had sizable followings. I think I had 16,000 Twitter followers and 12.2 thousand uh instagram followers so and and you know fairly engaged on those those platforms um and and i still have a little bit of trepidation on the professional side of things like what is this going to mean um especially in terms of the media side of things i i rely on sponsorship for income and sometimes that is tied into how big of a quote-unquote reach you have um and the numbers they ask are for your followers, uh, you know, on these, on these platforms. But I had to do it for me because I, I realized that these platforms weren't doing me any favors. I didn't have the discipline or self-control to use them in a responsible way. And even if that does have some professional repercussions, and as these past few weeks have gone on, I'm starting to believe that they won't actually, uh, or not have the repercussions that I, that I originally thought I needed to do it for myself. I needed to do it for my own well-being, for my own mental health, um, to, to be a better version of, of myself, to be a better husband, to be a better coach, to be a better writer, to be, you know, a better, a better podcaster, to be a better 
you know, brother and son, because they are distracting, you know, as well. And I, I got to a point where they were distracting, not just when I was using them, but even when I wasn't, I would be thinking about the post I had just put up or what I might post tomorrow or what it is that I'm, I'm missing. And I dealt with a little bit of that the first like week, week and a half of, of quitting these, these platforms. And that said something to me right there. It's like, that is, is a sign of a, a problem. Um, and as time has passed now, I think we're about three weeks removed. I feel the fog starting to lift. I can see the sky a little more clearly. I am actually feeling more creative and attentive. I'm sleeping better. Um, all of these things that I know these platforms affect, but I was willfully, you know, back to the, the, the wolf, willful ignorance. Um, like I would make myself like willfully ignorant of or think that I had control over when I, I really didn't. I'm now realizing like I, I didn't have control. Like I needed to I needed to do this. I needed a drastic intervention. And so I wrote about this for my newsletter, um, not this past week, but the two weeks prior when I decided to do it and then sort of a week one type of update. And I got five times the normal replies to my newsletter um, when I said that I quit. And, and is it, I certainly struck the chord with people who are dealing with a similar thing in, in their own lives and not necessarily people who have big followings, but the nature of these social media platforms is that they are addictive, that they try to keep you engaged. They're very smart at, at doing that. Um, you know, the people who came up with these algorithms are, they're no dummies. Um, and I certainly got overwhelmed by it and, I'm glad that I finally was able to take the step that I needed to take to, to help myself, uh, overcome this. So. Mate, well done because yeah, I, I did read it in newsletter as well. Um, and, and I guess we'll, we'll take this route and we'll go a little bit backwards because yes, you got very engaged followers on both Twitter and Insta and look, it's, it's, it's irrelevant now, but this email that you just mentioned so modestly, but the, the AM, um, shake out or the morning shake out email is is has to be one of the more engaging email uh, newsletters worldwide so mario has been writing this weekly for I, i'd be guessing at four or five years or more but we'll, we'll i'll let you talk about it but five years yeah. yeah it's really it's really powerful it touches on all different levels of of coaching and running and, and life, which is pretty much what the last 90, 90 minutes have been about which is is why he's so loved um but it's, it's powerful because he's an exceptionally good journalist as well. So we'll, we'll go through the, the, the newsletter, mate, and the podcast, the, the Morning Shakeout, where you've interviewed some of the great names in endurance sports and, and, just, and just, I guess, the, the genesis of all of this um, coming out of Competitor Magazine, which, look, Competitor was, like, I loved it um, as an, uh, an Aussie, um, mostly online, but I think we, I didn't even think we could get the tangible magazine in Australia, but definitely online. Nope. Yeah. So 2010 to 16, you were the senior editor of, of competitor competitor was one of the best running and endurance, um, I guess, content reading you could, you could get, um, on, on online back then. And, and Mario was, was the senior editor from 2010 to 16, but, um, out of that came the genesis of the morning shakeout and, and all these things. So I'll let you take us from there, mate, because I know it's a massive passion. Um, and and you, you've probably, you're best known for this and you've done the, the running world a great service with your work. So I'll let you take it off from there. Thank you. And I will say competitor still exists today, but as podiumrunner.com. And it's a long, complicated, convoluted story as to, as to why that is. But podiumrunner.com used to be competitor.com and most of my work at least from the standpoint of profiles that i've written and training articles that i've written and edited still live on that site a lot of um i mean my responsibility when i was there for six years was managing all of the training content and editing that section of the website and the magazine but also covering a lot of events um all around the all, all around the world, so you can still find a lot of that at Competitor. Um, but when I when I got there at Competitor in 2010, I was hired as the web editor. It was a the site was a year old at that point. There wasn't a ton of content on it. Um, Competitor.com and Competitor Magazine were two separate things. Competitor Group had purchased all of these properties, and 
the first year competitor magazine was a regional multi-sport magazine in the States. Uh, and it was freely distributed at running shops, tri shops, bike shops, uh, some select, uh, healthy fast food restaurants. And then the website was meant to be a, a running specific website. And I took over as the web editor in May, 2010, and in 2011, um, Brian Metzler, who's a, a good friend and colleague of mine, was brought on to be the editor-in-chief. And um, our goal was to combine the, the magazine and the website and make Competitor one cohesive property focused on running. So we shifted the content of the, the magazine in particular to be a national running magazine and we still had to regionalize it uh to a certain degree for for a couple of years but basically from 2012 to 2016 which was brian and i's reign um you know we we built it into one of the the most recognizable and respected running publications in in the u.s and at least online around the world and i still think it's a treasure trove of great content jonathan beverly is now in charge of the site he's the editor-in-chief he used to be at running times jonathan's a great journalist in his own right and i've been really impressed with what he's done over the last say like two years or so with with podium runner um and keeping the quality of that that content high but i think in terms of just good information. Uh, there's a lot of it there, and I'm really proud to have been a part of it and and been a part of its growth uh, during the six years that I was there. But my next to last year in 2015, um, I had been toying around with this idea of starting something. I didn't know what it was going to be, whether it would be a blog or an email newsletter, but I wanted my own personal outlet uh, where I could write about whatever the heck I wanted to write about. So at Competitor, while I loved writing training articles and covering events, I couldn't really get opinionated uh, for various reasons. And there were types of stories that I wanted to write that I just couldn't. They didn't fit in with our, our content plan. So I thought of this idea of the morning shakeout. I bought the URL sometime in 2014, I think I'd sat on it for a while. I knew I was going to have this thing called the morning shakeout. I just didn't know what it was going to be. And I ultimately decided to launch it as an email newsletter in 2015, end of 2015, November. And the reason I made that decision was I wanted people who were interested in what I had to write to be able to, to read it. And I knew from working at competitor, just knowing how people behave, they didn't really go to websites anymore. I mean, they'd go to websites uh, if they linked to an article off of Facebook or off of Twitter or someone emailed them something. But generally, the way people behave online now is they don't go to competitor.com and see what's new on the, the homepage. Some people do, but but many don't. Um, so at the morning shakeout, I, I wanted to be where people were already spending a good chunk of their time. And I decided that email was the best way to do that. Um, I could have done it on social media. I decided not to because I didn't own the platform and all Instagram or Twitter or Facebook had to do was change the algorithm and people might not be able to find my content. So I went with email and with email, the other quote unquote selling point for me is that people had to opt into it. It wasn't going to anyone who didn't sign up for it. I didn't have, you know, I didn't go to my contact list and say, Hey, you're going to get this and you can opt out. I wanted people to opt in. Uh, that's that's really important for me because if it's not speaking to you, if it's not something that you're interested in, something you don't want to read every week, then don't read it. I mean, you can unsubscribe. That's fine. But for the people who really love it, um, I wanted it to be in a place where they were already spending time. And from the very beginning, I wanted it to be something that was consistent and predictable, which also... Uh, you know, ties a little bit into how I think about training, not so much the predictability standpoint, but the consistency. So, I mean, as of, as of this week, um, I have not missed a week of the morning shakeout email newsletter in 256 weeks. It's come out every Tuesday for the last 256 weeks. Um, I write it and schedule it for the same time every week. So it's like, you can expect it to be in your inbox. And, that's really important to me to be able to, you know, to do that. And when I, when I started it, I think, um, you know, I, I'd been sitting on the idea for a while and even though I'm not on Twitter anymore at the time, I went on Twitter and I said, Hey, I've got this thing coming out next Tuesday. Uh, you can sign up for it here. If you're interested, uh, check it out. 
and I think the first couple issues went to like 200 people. And um, mostly people who follow me on Twitter were familiar with my work through competitor. And really, from the beginning, it was whatever I wanted it to be. And I, I did get opinionated. Things that were happening in the sport, I would, I would write about. And I did that in week one. Um, but I also because it was mine and I could make it whatever I wanted it to be. I also wanted to share things with people that I was paying attention to that I was reading. Um, eventually when I got in a podcast that I was listening to and saying like, Hey, I read this article this past week. I think you should check it out. And here's why, or I listened to this podcast. Here's what I took away from it and what you might be able to take away from it. Here's, you know, here's the link. And I mean, it's definitely, I've iterated on it since then, but it's, more or less still that um there's less for me to offer commentary on right now just given the the state of the sport and i've actually enjoyed not doing so much of that i did this past weekend with the with the london marathon but i really enjoyed just sharing what's going on in my life and what i you know what i'm struggling with what i'm thinking about problems that i'm i'm working through um because for me when i sit down to actually write it like i'm working through these things i'm trying to better understand what it is that i read or i listen to or that i'm thinking about um and it doesn't always all of it doesn't resonate with everyone but i like to think each week there's something in there that you can connect with and um i mean i've uh yeah, I mean, I've just been I've just been very consistent with it. Um, and for me, it's kind of like social media, but I have more control over it. Um, it's you know, my favorite parts of social media were connecting with people. We're having like on Twitter an actual back and forth dialogue with someone. And usually, when they moved to DM and they were private, they even got better than they were before uh, when they were just when they were just public now for the most part twitter has turned into just like a shouting match and i can't stand it but with my email newsletter if i write something even if it's an opinion that you don't disagree that you don't agree with you can write me back and i'll read it and then i'll write you back and we can have a, it, like 99.999 percent of those exchanges even if they're in disagreement are very civil so i enjoy that part of it um one thing i liked about Twitter and social media is like updating people on what's going on in my life. Well, I just do that in the newsletter now. Um, and it's, you know, the only people who see it are the people who are signed up for it and want to see that sort of stuff. Um, I share, I would share links on Twitter, which isn't a great place to share links. It doesn't convert very well, but they do in newsletters. So it's like, Hey, here are things that I've been paying attention to and I'm sharing them with other people who might want to pay attention to them. And it's a, a much more engaging, place and you know in that way but i don't have to follow anyone else i'm not scrolling through a feed i'm not consumed by that it's it's very much it's it's a personal it's it's personal it's personal without being like personalized i guess would be the best way to you know describe what i do with with the newsletter but i mean now it's almost 11,000 subscribers that's all organic it's all people who've opted into it i mean plenty of people have unsubscribed too um, and every week I, I get some number of replies. Some weeks I'll get, you know, two to six, some weeks I'll get, you know, 12 to 15 weeks like this, these past couple, like I'll get 60 plus, uh, or earlier this year I was getting ready to send out an issue and my Nana passed away at 92 years old. Someone I was very close to. And I wrote a little memorial to her on the bus ride to the airport. And I posted that instead of whatever I was, I was going to post that week. And I got, you know, 300 something replies from people, um, offering condolences, which isn't what I'm, you know, not what I was looking for, but it was still very, you know, it was very much like appreciated that I could share something about a person who's very important to me and let other people know about her and how she shaped my life. Um, and then people write back, you know, the most incredible things like, Hey, I lost my grandmother this year and this really, you know, spoke to me or, you know, my, my, I have a parent who's sick or something like that and they may not make it. Um, you know, I appreciate you, you sharing like your experiences and like, that's to me, like, that's what it's about. Like, you know, this, that's what this is all about. Like the writing, the podcast, the, the coaching, 
this conversation. It's about relationships. It's about connection. It's about conversation. Um, it's about getting to understand each other better, learning what makes someone else tick um, through sharing those experiences, gleaning some some sort of insight or information that might help someone else out. Um, because at the end of the day, that's what we're here to do. We're here to help each other out and help each other get through. And that's really what I'm trying to do each week with not only my newsletter, but my podcast and my coaching and all the the different things that I'm involved with. Yeah, brilliantly said, and you do it well. The email is fantastic. The podcast is just as good. Um, some of the great guests and the way you, um, I guess, extricate the best, the answers out of them and articulate the, the way you go about it is brilliant. Um, you touch on the podcast for a minute or two, and I implore all our listeners to jump on the morning shakeout podcast and newsletter um, for sure. But just touch on the podcast because it's, it's a brilliant show. So I started the podcast uh, about two years after I started the newsletter. So late 2017. So we're a little over two years in at this point. I started listening to podcasts more frequently myself in 2016. I really enjoy the medium. I really love interview style shows and being a fly on the wall for conversations. I also knew that I had not found the running podcast that I wanted to listen to. There's some good ones out there, some conversations that I enjoyed, but I'm a little picky, opinionated, I guess, in terms of what it is that I'm, I'm looking for. And I hadn't found the podcast that I, that, that I really connected with and I wanted to listen to. So I decided I'd create it myself which sounds like a really cocky thing to say, but I knew I had the chops to do it because I interviewed, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of people during my time at competitor. It was always one of my favorite things to do. They were always pretty short, you know, 15 to 45 minutes or so. And I always left those conversations being like, man, I wish I could spend another hour with this person and really like dig in and, and learn more about them. And I had made a lot of connections in the sport through my time at competitor, having been around the different events and athletes and um, from different, you know, different sides of it. So I knew that I could get some good guests on right away and have conversations with them that I, I personally had not been able to have with them in, the years prior. So I launched it myself in, in late 2017 and they were just, and still are the conversations that I've wanted to have with people that I'm curious about and that I want to hear from and that I'm interested in, in learning from. And I'm in a, a weekly rhythm now with that as well. I don't have quite the, the unblemished uh, consistency that I have with the newsletter since its very first one. I've missed a few weeks of the podcast here and there for various reasons and some of them plan breaks. Um, but I, I love it. I mean, most of the conversations are between one and two hours long. I talk with some of the top athletes in the, co in the sport coaches um, behind the scenes, industry personalities, uh, people who are just doing interesting things in running that I want to learn more about. Yeah, and it is. It's it's authentic and it's it's brilliant. Like you always nuggets of wisdom, but just it's real. It's fly. I love the fly on the wall adjective. That's that's exactly what yours is, and and you can just go for an easy jog or drive or, or whatever and listen to uh to Mario. Um, like we said, extricate the the most the best answers and and look some of the great guests as well. Like Killian Jornay was just on. Um, you've obviously had you've had Meb, you've had Troopy as well. You've had Scotty Forbel, uh, Shailene Flanagan. Um, Brett Bartholomew was just on the other day. Like you've had some amazing guests and I'm definitely missing hundreds, but um, has there been anyone that um, this is just off the cuff question, but was just surprisingly just amazing, just enlightened you like no end. It wasn't so much of a surprise, but he definitely enlightened me. And that was Frank Gagliano, who is the 82 year old, I think 83 now year old coach of the new, the Hoka, New Jersey, New York track club. He's been coaching for 60 some odd years. And look, I mean, I've had a lot of coaches on and that is not a mistake. I mean, for me, a lot of those conversations are continuing education. Honestly, um, they, they support what I do as, as a coach, I can learn from these people. And that interview I did with gags really impacted me on a, a deep level. And I feel really um, grateful that he was up for it. I was in New York. Uh, 
was this 20 was it 2018 i think um was when we did that in may of 2018 i had a number of my my women who live in new york that i coach running the brooklyn half marathon and the, that race was on a saturday and i had gotten coach gags contact information from liam boylan pet uh, who's also a podcast guest of mine, uh, but ran for gags at New Jersey, New York track club was one of his athletes and was still very close to him and put us in touch. And I asked him if he'd be up for a podcast and I had to explain to him what a podcast was because he had never been on one before. And he said, yeah, I would be absolutely willing to have a conversation with you. And I went up to his house in Rye, New York. I took the train up there from the city and he picked me up and I mean, spent the second half of the day with me and we talked for, I don't know, an hour and 15 minutes on the podcast just about his his life and his journey as as a coach and really what makes him tick still at 82 years old. And anyone listening to this can go listen to that Frank Gagliano Morning Shakeup podcast. It should pop up if you throw that into Google. But then I went to lunch with him afterward and we've stayed in touch. I talked to him probably about once a month and I feel like I in that regard, gained a second grandfather or third grandfather, I guess. Um, someone that I have an immense amount of respect for, have learned so much from, and was generous enough to take the time to sit down and talk to me about his life and, and coaching. And he's just so full of knowledge and passion. And it's very clear listening to that conversation why not why he's been a successful coach. I mean, that, you know, 15 Olympians and hundreds of all Americans and, and those numbers speak for themselves. But when he started talking about his athletes that he's worked with and I'm in his office with him at his house and he's breaking down in tears in front of me, uh, which caught me off guard, but that set the light bulb off for me. That's what it's about. It's about, I mean, I knew this before, but it just reaffirmed like this is about relationships. This is about the impact that you can have on someone's life. This is about the connections that you keep well beyond when someone's competitive career is over. That's what a good coach is. Good coach isn't how many Boston qualifiers they've, they've guided or how many Olympic games they've been to. That stuff's great. Um, Gags has done all of, of those things, but the way that he speaks about his athletes, the fact that they, a lot of them call him every week just to check in and, and say hi and see how he's doing, the way they speak about him, um, that to me is success as a coach. And that to this day, I think that was number like 73 or 78 or something like that. Still the most impactful podcast that I've, I've had. And I've had plenty of others as well um, that are that are worth checking out. But if if people listening to this have not listened to Morning Shakeout and you want one to listen to or one to start with, go to Frank Gagliano, listen to that podcast, and then pick up a few others from there. Well, um, bloody hell, I'm glad I asked that question. That's a magnificent answer. And what, what a way to finish the, I guess, the coaching um, segment that we've just spoken about for 90 odd minutes about relationships with, with that with that episode and, and listen, our listeners will definitely go to the morning show again. They'll also click subscribe Mario, of course. Now a few quick fire answers. Sure. Legend. Um, favorite runner ever as a fanboy. If you've Steve got Steve Jones. Oh yes. Very good. A workhorse. You can have 30 seconds on him. Well, he has been my favorite runner of all time since high school. And I picked up a copy of, Michael Sandrock's running with the legends, which has these mini bios of legendary athletes in the sport. Kip Kino, Joan Benoit Samuelson, Frank Shorter, Bill Rogers, Lasse Vera, and Steve Jones. And what I love about Steve Jones, even though his competitive career was over by the time mine started, I can go back and watch some of his races on YouTube, but the stories about him and just how tough of a competitor that he was. And similar to, my own upbringing in Worcester, Massachusetts, which is a very blue collar, you know, blue collar city, blue, co blue collar area um, in central Massachusetts. I mean, he grew up in Wales, uh, very similar type of background, definitely took a different path in life, but he was just a hard worker and really busted his ass to get good. And when he raced, he was just relentless and he was fearless and he respected everyone that he lined up against, but he did not fear any of them. 
And he had this quote, still my favorite quote of all time. And it was about cross country specifically. But he said, if I'm still standing at the end of the race, take a board and knock me over because that means I didn't run hard enough. And I just have an immense amount of respect for that attitude and that approach. And I had him on my podcast uh, a year or so ago. And that one is right up there as one of my favorite conversations. I recorded that one remotely, not in person, but it was just the another honor of a lifetime to sit down for an hour with my hero in running, my favorite runner of all time, and get to ask him the questions that I've been wanting to ask since high school. Yeah, great answer. And all athletes, whether you love running or not, would love Steve Jones for that reason. The blue collar, the grit, the determination, the toughness, and the desire to just go so deep into the well that you cannot um, see out. Great answer. Your passions, I know you love your coffee and your photography. Um, <laughs> and, of course, your beautiful wife um, and puppy Tahoe. Now, tell us, is it is it Christine, your wife? Yeah, Christine is my wife. We've been married for a little over seven years now. Uh, Tahoe is our puppy. We got him... 10 months ago at, at this point, uh, he's a 75 pound shepherd mix. We took him on a run this morning. We were out for about 50 minutes or so. Um, love them both to death. That's my, that's my family. I mean, my family's much bigger than that. My extended family with my, you know, my dad, my siblings and all of that, but my immediate family here, uh, especially these past seven months, we spent a lot of time together. Fortunately, we all love each other. So that's definitely made it, made it a lot easier, but I mean, they are, um, you know, they both bring me an immense amount of joy every day and I enjoy spending time with them. Um, and in addition to that, yeah, I'm a big coffee snob. Uh, I grind my own every morning. I sample different types of beans, different types of brewing methods. Uh, when I could more freely go to cafes and get coffee, I would do that on a regular basis. Uh, not quite as easy to do right now, or I do it with less frequency, I should say. Uh, and I, I do like taking photos. I mean, most of them I take with my, my iPhone. So I usually have it with me, but I've got a Sony a seven behind me. And part of what I've been doing the last couple of weeks that I haven't been spending as much time on social media, I have a guide over here, like, uh, how to use the a seven. Um, I've got a couple of YouTube videos that are, you know, how to shoot better photos with that. And it's, I mean, much like, uh, basketball in a way, like that's, that would be like a hobby of mine now is is just taking photos and just learning how to i mean again curiosity like how do i how do i get better at doing this um i i love that process and i i hope i always do great answer love it and i love i love hearing people talk about their passions um especially but um final final question mate and it's been a great nearly two hours so i really thank you for your time but have we gone uh, that long i guess so that's yeah. great i i'm glad you didn't realize how long we're gone because that means you're having fun um now the future for Mario, I think coaching media, we know that the, the future, like even as a runner, like, have, have you got unfinished? Like, you, I think you're a 227 man on the marathon, which was recent, yeah. was quite recent yeah. from memory. Um, 2018, yeah. Yeah. So do we... Are you going to continue to to go down the marathon path, or I know you've done some ultras with some some greater plum as well. On a running sense, I know you're just doing it for the love, but what do you want to get out of running over the next 10, 15 years? It's an interesting question and one I've been thinking a lot about recently. I'm going to be 40 in about a year and a half, which is a fairly significant milestone for a runner because then you're in the master's category. And I'm really pleased with the personal best that I've posted in my life. I have no unfinished business as far as any of that goes. I'm I'm probably likely not going to touch any of my shorter distance PBs at this point. I think I could shave a little more off the marathon if I really put an earnest effort into it. I just don't know if I want to. Um, I definitely have some unfinished business with the ultra marathon stuff, but I don't have the desire to pursue it right now from both a time standpoint and just doing that type of training and that type of running. I'm in a good environment for it. I've got plenty of great trails and and places to run, but just so much damn time. And, and I, I'm, uh, you know, I'm wrapped up in so many other things. I don't want to be out for, you know, four or five, six hours on a, on a Saturday slogging away on the trails. So I have this, I have this developing thought of going the other way over the next couple of years and getting back on the track possibly, uh, when I turn 40 and doing a little more cross country racing when we can do that sort of thing and seeing if I can be, 
competitive as a master's runner. I don't know what it is. I mean, a lot of people go that route. Um, and maybe it's the new age category, maybe because there's masters only races. So you can actually go into them and feel competitive, but I'd like to see if I can be competitive on the track as a master's runner. Um, I've run 409 for the full mile and 351 for 1500 meters. I, I don't believe I'm going to touch that, but I have this very arbitrary and outlandish goal of seeing if I could maybe break four minutes for 1500 meters again, uh, as a, as a master's runner, if I could do that, I think I'd be pretty competitive. And what's great about it at this point in my life is that no one cares except me. Uh, and, and, I think age has had a way of doing that with me in many different areas of my life, but no one cares, but me, like maybe it would qualify me for a national championship. I don't even know if that thing sort of exists, but I don't really care. I just want to see if I can do it. Um, and if I don't, it wouldn't ruin my day. Um, but I'm, I'm curious to see if I can and what that would take from a training standpoint and how well I handle that kind of work at this point of my life with, you know, I don't know, probably close to a hundred thousand miles on my body at this point. Um, somewhere close to that, I would guess I've got to total it up, but, but seeing like what it would be like to train in that way, uh, at, at this age where I haven't done that in, I don't know, 15 years, 16 years at this point. Um, I've, I've run some hard miles since then and none of them have given me any, real confidence that a four minute 1500 meters is, is something that I'm capable of, but I know I've done it in the past. I know I've run that pace for 600 meters in a, you know, in a time trial or, or in a workout. I wonder if with the appropriate type of training, again, curiosity, I'm curious if I, if I go about this in a very methodical way, can I, can I do this at 40 years old, you know, 25 years into my running life i don't know um but something about that excites me right now never stop being curious mario that's that's awesome and experimenting and trying that arbitrary number is is definitely more than just that mate it's a it's a great curious and and, and a great number to try to see if with the right training and planning and just desire can i can i break four minutes for the 1500 um, I love the masters. I love the masters, um, scene. I think it's fantastic. And, and we can always continue to keep, um, being better versions of ourselves. Um, I really thank you, um, for your two hours today that I've, I've dragged you out of your, your beautiful home there in San Fran. Oh, sorry. 50 kilometers North of San Fran. Where are you? Tell the listeners where you, where you're situated. Uh, so we're in, we're in Nevada, California, which is in, the. Uh, the beautiful area of Marin County. We're in the very fringes of the county where it's far north as you can go. I'm surrounded by a lot of cows and farmland and open roads and trails. And it's, it's a lovely, lovely place. I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with this one. Where's the better coffee, the West coast or the East coast? Oh, I, you had to ask me that because if any of my East coast friends are listening <laughs> to this, they're not going to allow me back there, but certainly the West coast. I mean, East coast of, of the U S um, there are some smaller artisanal coffee shops, which I'm sure are great, um, but they are overshadowed by the behemoth that is Dunkin' Donuts. And I am not a fan of Dunkin' Donuts coffee. I'm going to get crucified for that if anyone back home is listening to this. Um, but here on the, the West Coast, the craft coffee scene, uh, the artisanal way of, of grinding and brewing beans is much more prominent. And I have found more places that are to my liking here than I have on the East coast, which is still very much Dunkin' Donuts country. No that's, offense that, that's to any of my friends who love Dunkin' Donuts. That's okay. Now you've got to, you got to be, you got to be honest. And I think just coming off that last 30 seconds, you would absolutely love Melbourne's coffee and cafe scene. So. I've, yeah, I've heard, I've heard great things. I mean, you know, what's crazy is in New York and I've spent quite a bit of time in New York in recent years, there is a, we'll call it a, a movement um, behind Aussie coffee shops in New York. I don't know if it's particular parts of the city. I've got a, a good friend of mine, Tom McKay, um, who met me at one of them once and gave me the lowdown on some other, you know, some other locations, but I haven't seen that quite anywhere else, at least not here in the Bay area, maybe in Southern California, but I've, I've heard amazing things about the Aussie coffee scene and, and it is on my list of things to do. Someday. It's funny you say that one of our, most prominent uh, footballers, AFL footballers, Aussie rules from from the um, 
this millennium, Joe Watson actually went over there in about 2017 in New York and set up a little, yeah, Melbourne based coffee and cafe um, set up, which, which is, yeah. So it's funny you say that. So that there is a couple of prominent Aussies going over there that we know of as well, which is, which is fantastic. Um, mate, we've, we've cut, we've touched on all subjects, but I knew it was going to be deep and, and I was really, um, excited for that because I think a lot of us really, um, love the way you go about life. And I think if we can all take a leaf out of Mario's book, we'll, um, we'll be a lot richer for it. I truly thank you for your time today, um, mate. So any, any parting words? Keep going. That's how I sign off a lot of my emails and, it's not a throwaway um, sign-off either. I think, you know, for for various reasons in our life, we want to stop, we want to quit, um, or at least we, you know, we feel that way. And some people do, and that can take many different forms. And I tell myself on a daily basis in a number of situations that I need to keep going. And I mean, there are certainly times that you do need to stop and you can get yourself in trouble if you do keep going. But more often than not, um, whatever it happens to be, whether it's in your relationships, whether it's in your work life, whether it's, you know, with running, you're dealing with frustrations of, of some sort, um, work through them, keep going. And those would be my final two parting words. Beautiful sign off. Magnificent. I, I appreciate this and I, I've loved the last two hours. Um, runners, listeners, please do something today that's going to make you better tomorrow. And, and that you can start by listening to the last two hours of this great man in front of me. I, uh, until next time, I've been Runners Radio and this is Rick Mirabella.